Hello again to all of you wonderful listeners out there who are taking time out of your busy day to hang out with us here for a bit. I sure do appreciate you stopping by. Welcome to the Treat Addiction Save Lives podcast. I'm your host, Zach Caruso, here to lead us on another great conversation about addiction, treatment, and recovery. Uh, today, we're talking with Dr. Michael Fingerhood, and he sat down to tell me about his formative years in addiction medicine during the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. Uh, he shared the story of the first patient that he ever prescribed buprenorphine to, who, believe it or not, is still his patient to this day. And uh, he talks a bit about launching the Words Matter Pledge at Johns Hopkins University aimed at combating stigma in the addiction treatment space. Dr. Fingerhood had a lot of great stories and insights. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to uh, to talk with him. So let's get to know him here a little bit before we jump into the episode. Dr. Fingerhood, a Brooklyn, New Yorker through and through, is a professor of medicine and public health at Johns Hopkins University and chief of the Division of Addiction Medicine at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He created the Comprehensive Care Practice in 1994, a Ryan White-funded primary care practice largely devoted to providing care to individuals uh, with substance use disorder, and that practice has been innovative in the integration of buprenorphine treatment into the primary care setting for nearly a thousand individuals seeking care now. He has also co-created novel buprenorphine treatment programs at a community center, at a church, and in a mobile van outside the Baltimore Detention Center. And by the way, this is when he isn't seeing patients at his practice or teaching and consulting with Johns Hopkins University. He is the co-author of the ASAM Handbook of Addiction Medicine and currently chairs the ASAM State-of-the-Art Conference and the ASAM Medical Education Council. Now that is enough out of me. I'm holding up the show. So let's get into today's talk with Dr. Michael Fingerhood. And you know... I had, like I mentioned, one of the first things that we'll touch on is kind of why um, addiction medicine. I know a little bit about your story um, that you had talked about in our last our last call, but um, you know, you had mentioned that you started your addiction medicine career in the Bronx in the 1980s. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was a medical a medical student in the Bronx in the mid 80s. I graduated medical school in 86. The mid 80s were a time that had a, a lot of injection drug use in New York. It really picked up probably in the late 70s. I, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. After the Vietnam War, the methadone clinic, I remember in the block I lived in, in Brooklyn, a methadone program actually opened up on the, in the same place that I lived, an apartment building. And in the Bronx at that time, um, I did most of my rotations at Bronx Municipal Hospital, which was a, um, a city hospital in the Bronx that had a huge catchment area and just lots of complications related to injection drug use. And uh, that, that's really what triggered my, my interest. Well, yeah, and you had said um, that you were thrust into addiction medicine by way of stigma and the rise of the AIDS epidemic. Can you tell me, tell me about that time period and those experiences providing medical care? What was the catalyst or the moment that kind of moved you toward addiction medicine in particular? Yeah, so I was doing my uh, medicine rotation at Jacobi or Bronx Municipal Hospital and uh, it came to a point where there was a board for admissions and on the admission board next to patients names would be their diagnosis and the typical diagnosis uh, was actually an abbreviation SWAF which stood for shooter with a fever it was pretty dehumanizing and I remember even a resident saying ah oh, another you know another SWAF or SWAF and uh, a medical student, you can take your time to get to know individuals as people, not, not just as patients. And I got to know several, and it, 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 I realized that it, was, it wasn't so simple, that, that addiction was complicated, and their lives were complicated as well. And I remember saying to my attending at some point, uh, 
we admit people that injection drug use with a fever and nothing is done about the root cause of why they're in the hospital that uh, we make sure they don't have a heart infection and then we send them on their way and we never address their, their addiction. And uh, my attending who was well-meaning then said to me, well, that's not a medical problem. That's nothing we, there's nothing there that we can do. Um, and that really resonated as I, I knew I had interest in urban medicine. Uh, HIV was taken off in the Bronx then as well. And uh, uh, it was, you know, I grew up in New York City in a very urban setting. And I wanted to take care of people in, in, in need. And it seemed, for, for me, it was, I always liked challenges. Like uh, even as a kid, if someone said, you know, this is extra credit because it's really hard, it meant that I had to do it. So, so when he said there's nothing that we can do, uh, I, I wouldn't accept that. And uh, that was the challenge. He didn't realize he gave me that challenge, but the, that was the challenge that I took. That's incredible. And I mean, from then till now, you still are, are you know, working on combating that kind of viewpoint and stigma. Uh, in fact, you recently launched at John Hopkins University. It's called the Words Matter Pledge. Um, and this pledge supports understanding language relating to addiction and how using the right language can help to decrease stigma and na- uh, make treatment more effective. You mentioned you already have over 300 signatures so far. Um, I'd love to hear, tell me about the Words Matter Pledge um, and why is it that the language that physicians and nurses and addiction care providers are using uh, have such a big impact. Yeah, I, I think that all along I've, I cringed when I would hear terms that people use, whether it be on the you know as I'm walking around doing consults in the hospital, or if I was um, on a uh, Zoom call even, or even in email messages, I would see very decent, you know very stigmatizing terms. Um, or even the way individuals w- were talked about who had addiction. I mean, we, we all, uh, you know, independent of words even, I remember uh, as a medical resident in the emergency departments uh, in the days of paper pre-electronic health records, you would see with the chief complaint was someone who, uh, someone who came to, to the emergency department and it was related to addiction. I remember a nurse saying, well, I'm putting that at the bottom of the, of the pile in the bin. Um, and early on, I didn't speak up, I have to admit. And then eventually I realized it started bothering me and, and, and I would speak up and, and you, I'd hear, fr- you know, phrases from seemingly people who cared. I don't think anybody goes into nursing or becomes a physician or becomes a physical therapist without wanting to help people. But yet, uh, we hear things, uh, I'll give you another example. I remember we admitted a patient with complications of alcohol use disorder who had trouble walking. And uh, we had asked for a physical therapy consult and none came. And I called personally to the person who was to be covering. And the response was, well, that person brought it on themselves. I'm not going to waste my time seeing them. Um, so those are the kinds of stigma, you know, that often goes unsaid, right? If I hadn't called, I wouldn't have known how that person was being stigmatized. <clears throat> and I think that in times that may be even worse than the overt stigma where you can speak up and, and say something and try to teach and create some understanding. Um, and that happens. And I also realized that stigma often is personal. As I remember another time that I said something to a nurse in the emergency department, and then she opened up about her, her personal uh, life in which she was living with a husband with a severe addiction. And she really didn't really have insight. She had anger about her husband's addiction and then after conversation became apparent that she was displacing some of that anger toward patients so so i I think when we see stigma we have to 
speak about it and say something, that sometimes delve into more because I think uh, I, I don't think all stigma is the result of people wanting to be mean or people who don't have compassion, but it, it's most often more complicated. But raising awareness, I think, is essential. That's that's amazing, and that's a really interesting take. And I, you know, um, you also talk about you know, last time we we spoke, you were telling me about the importance of a comprehensive and holistic care team. I mean, you're talking about the importance of kind of the words you're using and how you're approaching these patients. And another part of that is this idea you said: effective care is doing as much as you can in one setting. Siloing care perpetuates stigma. So. Talk to me about why is this the case, Dr. Fingerhood? Like what happens in a situation where all the necessary components to care, um, maybe they're more spread around various clinics and settings versus being available under one roof with, uh, you know, a capable and compassionate team? Yeah. So, so the, for example, for opioid use disorder, the historic model, you know, f- for the first 30 years or so of care was that. Uh, if I wanted to effectively treat someone for opioid use disorder, I would have to tell them to go to a methadone treatment program that were created with that runs based on rules that were created, you know, over 50 years ago <clears throat> that aren't available and convenient for people to go to. And the way those programs were created, it was stigmatizing. Meaning, this isn't normal medical care. We have to create special rules for you because we don't trust you, and you have to show up every day for the first 90 days. But my patient who has bad diabetes and eats poorly uh, needs support too, but I don't make them come every day for 90 days. You know, I work with them and to, to try to help them. So the issue of, of siloing cares has really been historic, that, that we have done that for addiction. And in a way, we've said that people... Uh, medical records related to addiction are siloed, right? So there's a rule, a federal rule called 42 CFR that says that um, medical records and treatment related to to addiction has to be separate from their other health records. And and that's seemingly to, it was created to seemingly protect people with addiction, but it actually uh, is stigmatizing, saying this is outside the realm of regular medical care. it was supposed to be, uh, you know, we want to keep this part of your record more confidential, but in, in fact, it, it's perpetuating the fact that this is not a health problem. This is a different kind of problem. Um, so, so the thing that really helped us unsilo a lot of care was the fact that we were able to prescribe buprenorphine starting about 20 years ago and able to do it in a normal medical setting. So up until available with buprenorphine, a patient came to me and said, I'm in opioid withdrawal. It was really little I could do because of the Harris Narcotic Act, right? Over 100 years ago, someone could prescribe, he has a tincture of morphine, take a little bit uh, according to the schedule, and I'll help you. But, you know, for over 100 years, we really couldn't help patients effectively with opioid use disorder. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to say this is regular medical care, and we can just as we treat you for hypertension, diabetes, uh, HIV, hepatitis C, I can treat you for opioid use disorder. So it normalizes care and it makes people feel that this is a health problem like anything else. Um, and we were also able to, you know, I created a, a model and we published a paper looking at Medicaid population in, in uh, Maryland who came to us for primary care. We were able to show by integrating care for opioid use disorder using buprenorphine, we actually saved uh, the state Medicaid program money because 
patient, individual patients were coming to one place for everything. And all of a sudden now this person's coming, you know, for treatment of, of opioid use disorder. And now I know their blood pressure needs treating or they have hepatitis C that's not being treated. Um, they've never addressed health maintenance. They've never had a colonoscopy. Um, and especially early on, the, the, the ability to treat uh, addiction in a primary care setting really builds rapport as well. So pay, from a patient perspective, if I could trust this provider to do this for me, I'm going to trust them to, to help me with the rest of my life. But it's pretty tough to convince someone in the midst of addiction that you should care about screening for colon cancer. Right, right. But you have to get them in a, to a point where that even matters. And why do you think that this is, Dr. Fingerhood, that, that addiction in general is um, still kind of dealing with the stigma and shrouded in the secretiveness and people don't want to be open about it? They fear being stigmatized, you know, from the individual level up to sort of this broader level. Why do you think that addiction in, in particular is still dealing with these issues? Yeah, I, I think it's complicated. I think a lot of patients have been the past victim of stigma. And, but I also think there's often, uh, and I talk to patients about their self-assigned stigma at times as well, right? So if someone, uh, they're, they're, when I work with patients with addiction, I, I usually talk about uh, three aspects of, of working on recovery. The, the first, and they're all interrelated. The, the first is undoing shame, right? So, so and uh, related to shame is often blame, right? The, you know, once you have addiction, it doesn't serve any purpose to blame anybody or anything. Um, and uh, we have to undo shame, and the shame is very much tied into self-esteem. I have a cartoon I sh sometimes share with patients where uh, a provider says to a patient, the best thing you can do for yourself is not drink, and the patient says back, well, I don't deserve the best. What else can I do? Um, and that's what we, we have to think of patients being in, in, that, right, in, in that kind of mindset. Um, so we have to really help patients build self-esteem, and it's, it's really a very slow process. And, and then the other aspect, which I'm always open about with, with patients, and uh, I think sometimes uh, is a hindrance to people understanding addiction is, is coping. Like all of us cope with a stress in a certain way, and um, get, helping patients understand that and anticipate vulnerable times and what they need coping with, I think, is really important as well. But having said that, doing that in the primary care setting really is incredibly powerful because as a primary care provider, I, I try to make patients' lives better. And that, that's all kind of all-encompassing. That means addressing addiction and healthy lifestyle and all, all of that. Um, so so my view in a, in a primary care setting of integrating and unsiloing care is, is I'm here to help facilitate all aspects of your life. And um, uh, I, I often use a kind of a corny theme saying, we're going to start a fan club. I'll be a member, but you're the president. And then we try to identify other people in their life that can help facilitate um, their health getting better. And by health, you know, addiction is part of their health. Right. Another thing that you've mentioned too, and you, you're talking about your clinic and all, but another thing that you mentioned is that um, one way to combat stigma is to have as many learners as possible. So tell me about the fellows that you work with at your clinic and the importance of teaching these newer generations of physicians about addiction. Yes. Yeah, so I learned early on that uh, if I just do it, 
that means I only touch a few people. But if I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. So the, the, for instance, uh, in 2000s or so, I have a medical student rotate with me as a first year medical student who did his longitudinal uh, uh, clerkship in medicine with me. And he's now, I could say his name, I assume. It's Alex Wally, who's now a, a ASAM member and a leader of uh, for overdose prevention in the state of Massachusetts. Oh, amazing. So, yes. And then I, it's really fulfilling to have learners, right? So now how many people has he impacted, right? So, so he's had students and fellows and residents as a result. So, so it's, you know, it's just this huge branching out. And I, I, there are more and more, I think there are more students interested <clears throat> in this aspect of medicine um, and learning about it. It's, uh, it's pretty personal as well. Uh, so I teach a medical student course, uh, Selective on Addiction, in a, it's Ethics and Public Health. And this year, uh, three of the 20 students had a close family member with opioid use disorder. So, so it's become personal as well as how more and more students are choosing it. You know, so we have medical students rotate with us. We have residents who rotate with us. We actually have residents who spend every third month with a, a pa- seeing a, keeping a panel of patients in our clinic. Um, and then we created about five years ago an addiction medicine fellowship um, as we created, uh, needed more help in term, uh, for our uh, addiction medicine council service. And those fellows have gone on to be great people. I always say to them at the beginning that someday I'm going to be able to say I knew you when you were a fellow because they're going to you know, go, go forward and be researchers and clinicians and educators for, for more generations. You can tell how passionate that you are about addiction medicine. I mean, just by listening to you talk, but also by hearing a rundown of your average weekly schedule. Let's talk about this for a second, because not only are you seeing patients at your outpatient clinic, you do consult services with John Hopkins University. You're involved with ASAM and the educational programs, and you volunteer your time, correct me if I have this wrong, at a church prescribing buprenorphine to uh, basically folks in need who don't want to go elsewhere for treatment out of fear of being stigmatized. So what do you think drives you to be involved in these various pursuits and why do you think it's important to be you know giving of your time and your efforts and knowledge in the way that you are i mean i think an important part of it is also i I learned this is that you can't expect everybody to come to you and there are people out there that you're not reaching Uh, i think it's especially become to light as we see uh you know over the last five years you know rising opioid overdose deaths in, in all communities, but especially, you know, I'm focusing on the community here in Baltimore. So I've been leading a university initiative to try to impact uh, opioid overdose deaths, uh, especially in East Baltimore. And in order to do that, I, I went out to the communities. I work now with um, harm reduction individuals, health departments, and uh, I've done a m- much outreach, for instance, in churches. Um, there are a lot of people in the community who care, community associations, people who want to understand addiction people who need to learn that using methadone or buprenorphine isn't substituting one drug for another. Um, so, so working on stigma within communities is really important as well. Um, communities that initially said, we don't need naloxone training, all of a sudden saying, we want naloxone training. Churches saying, we want naloxone training. Um, so having conversations is really important. I'll just share one other story. So I, I got involved with, believe it or not, a, a uh, boxing gym in East Baltimore called the Max Lewis Gym. 
uh, and they have a nonprofit foundation. And uh, um, I didn't know what to expect, so I went there to visit. And indeed, it's it's a, a big room with a boxing ring in the middle. But they do incredible. They do community outreach in trying to help kids, uh, vulnerable kids in East Baltimore, eight to eighteen year olds. And um, I, I became really interested. And during COVID, they created a mentoring program. A lot of these kids were having virtual learning, and they couldn't keep up. And so after three o'clock, they had um, each each kid got a mentor to help them with their homework. And they were able to get donations of computers, donations of equipment from a sports company based in this in Baltimore. I won't name them. And uh, <laughs> and it became this amazing process. So I, this was also outside my comfort zone. So so we did some opioid uh, education for these eight to eighteen year old kids. And I remember I let off the first session. How many of you know somebody who's died of an overdose? And every hand went up. So I realized that, um, you know, I'm an a, a adult physician typically <laughs> who takes care of over 18-year-olds. But if we want to prevent and, and do some prevention, we have to work with kids in the community as well. So I've been involved with the gym. Uh, this past Christmas, I, I came by and they were having an amazing event. They had a lunch um, with incredible gift giveaway for homeless kids in East Baltimore. Um, so do, we're doing work in the community. And as you mentioned, I'm in a church on Monday morning providing services. The, the church has an amazing pastor uh, who you know, befriended as well. Um, you, you, got, you can't expect everybody to come to you. You have to go into the community. That's amazing. And you mentioned something about, you know, the age of these kids that you said every one of them knew someone who had died of an opioid use disorder. What can you tell me, what do you see, you know, especially over the past few years, we know that the statistics are going up, you know, opioid use, alcohol use. What do you see in today's day and age? What's happening? Or, or is it getting younger? The people that are being exposed to this, you know, what are the demographics? What do you see shifting and changing both good and bad today? Yeah. So I, I certainly think we need to prevent new but it is rather alarming, and I'll share who I see at the church in a second, in, in that it's especially those, so it's black men over the age of 55 that have the, had the largest increase in opioid overdose deaths. Um, it's likely that the older you are, the more vulnerable you are to respiratory depression from fentanyl. That's probably the, the major piece. Um, having said that, it's really fascinating over the last yeah, one year to two of the people coming to the church it, the most common person seeking treatment often for the first time is uh, uh, someone over the age of 60. I mean, I, I met a gentleman in over 70 who for the first time was seeking treatment for opioid use disorder um, and been using since his 20s. So, there, so, yeah, and his fear was that he had an overdose um, and realized that the street drugs weren't uh, were more likely to cause an overdose than he'd ever seen before. Um, I've had some individuals, individuals claim that they hold a Narcan in one hand as they snort some fentanyl, just in case they feel like the medication, the drug that they bought was going to be too strong. Um, I don't think that's particularly effective, although I've met one person who told me that they, uh, uh, on our consul service, that they had self-administered Narcan. Uh, and reverse their own overdose. That's that's 
pretty remarkable. And you're, you know, you're talking about some of the people that you, that you see in these various settings. And you had told this amazing story that I, I would love to hear more about. And it was about the first person that you ever prescribed buprenorphine to. And you said, they're still your patient today. Um, I believe you said she's now retired in her seventies. Uh, can you share what was that journey and relationship like, and what has it been like over these past few decades? Yeah. So I actually just saw her a few weeks ago. Um, uh, I'll, I'll make sure she, she's not identifiable, but so she was a woman who, uh, so this was, two, I guess, 2002. We were waiting for buprenorphine to be officially approved by the FDA. She had been in a buprenorphine trial, actually, and during the trial became pregnant and was told she had to leave the trial and to go on to methadone. So she, so she, she was my primary care patient and was on methadone. Uh, she had other health problems, and she kept asking me, when can you switch me to buprenorphine? When can you switch me to buprenorphine? So, so as soon as the FDA approved it, and I knew it was available in, in, a, in pharmacies, um, I switched her. And, and it's funny because early on you would think uh, that uh, for buprenorphine you would choose an easy patient. So my first patient was someone that I switched from methadone to buprenorphine because she was so anxiously awaiting being able to do it. Um, uh, and she... Uh, continued being my patient all these, you know, over two decades, as remains on buprenorphine at the same dose she's been on for over twenty years. Um, at at some point, she had said maybe I should decrease my dose, and I said, "Well, why don't you think about it? You're doing really well. There is no harm." And she said, "Now nah, let, let let just things be." You know, she had, she's a grandmother. She has great family relationships. We have great conversations. Uh, she's otherwise uh, uh, she's done really well. She doesn't. Luckily, she doesn't, didn't have a lot of complications of her past opiate use disorder. Um, so it's really wonderful. I reflect with her. She, she obviously knows that she was my first patient on buprenorphine. Oh, that's incredible. Um, you know, you have these stories, you have these patients that you've worked with for, for decades. You have these different settings that you work in. I would love to know. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self, to young Dr. Fingerhood just entering his medical career? What do you wish you knew then? And what wisdom would you impart onto the, the new younger generation of physicians that are just getting involved now in addiction medicine? Yes. So I think getting to know patients with addiction and gaining their trust means, I think it's really a privilege that I often know more about my patients' lives than anybody else in their life, which is hard to believe. Like It's often more than their spouse or their family members. Um, the open up to me and the the aspect of doing it in the primary care setting means it's an enduring process so i'm not someone who, I, I treat hepatitis c but they don't just see me for you know uh, for weeks of treating hepatitis c or for you know weeks of addiction treatment they they see me for the, for the you know for the long haul and being able to know patients in that way is just incredible and and obviously, the personally reinforcing aspect, and I share with patients, and, and I, I let learners see my patients I've known for a long time, um, because I think it's really valuable for them to hear insights from the patients as well about the, the, how powerful a long-term relationship is with a provider, and how many patients on a personal level have said to me, you know, I reflect on how you saved my life. Um, and that could most often is addiction. It's true. I, I treat hepatitis C and I treat HIV, but but hepatitis C we cure. But HIV, you know, people continue on medication. Um, addiction, it is true. People remain on medication, but but 
so often people in the midst of addiction are, um, uh, aren't eating. They have, um, so I've seen patients who've got in the midst of addiction, come to see me for their first visit. They have, you know, they, they are weigh less than a hundred pounds. They have no access to food. I think one gentleman I met who came to me on his first visit uh, with hay on his clothes. I said, what's the scoop here? And, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm homeless and living in a horse stable. And this is 25 years ago. And this gentleman has is, is remained my pay. He weighed like, I don't know, less than 100 pounds. He's probably 5'11", less than 100 pounds. Yeah, and you know, he sees me now every three months. He's this amazing guy. He's helped me teach students as well. Um, and it's incredible to re reflect uh, on what he looked like when I first met him. And I can even, I'm a pretty visual person. I can visually, you know, close my eyes and see what he looked like and even recall our initial conversation. Um, and what he said to me was, I, I decided to stick with you because you gave me some hope. And I think that's the message we have to give people. I love it. Dr. Fingerhood, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us today. It's been a fantastic conversation and uh, hopefully we can convince you to come back again one day soon. Sounds good. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Michael Fingerhood for coming on the podcast and uh, for such a great talk. If you want to learn more about the Words Matter Pledge and uh, what Dr. Fingerhood has going on with that, we've got it linked in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. Uh, listen, if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, we want you to know that you're not alone. Treatment is available and recovery is possible. So visit the link in our show notes to access patient resources like our physician directory, patient and family support groups, and much more. And that is it. That is all for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. And until the next episode, treat addiction, save lives. Be well, and I will see you next time.